From the UCLA Labor Center and KPFK, we bring you ReWork. I'm Sabah Wahid. And I'm Vina Hampapur. Ten years ago, I could not imagine jumping into a stranger's car and driving across town with them. You basically needed to own your own car, or you could ride the bus. But now ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft have completely changed how we get around. When you open up that app, you see a driver's picture, the car's model, and a license plate number. But what do you really know about that person on the other side of that phone? What brought them to the work? What's it like to drive? On today's episode of Rework, Alexandra Carbone takes us on a journey that led her to drive for Uber and Lyft. Alex grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. It's like the preppy capital of the world. It's like not a normal place. It's Ivy League. I grew up around a lot of like privilege and I was always had one foot in kind of both worlds. So my dad's like an artist. While I was growing up, he ran like a ceramic studio on an army base in Bayonne. So I was between like Princeton and like the Bayonne army base. <laughs> so my parents had like a pretty horrible divorce and so them like fighting a lot and making these categorical statements like, I never did the dishes. Your mother always did. The, like, you know, I had to do all the housework. Your mother did, never did any of it. Or, you know, and, me, and her, she, her saying the exact opposite and being seven and being like, how can you not remember who did the dishes? You know, it just made me like really question, like, what even is true? How can people believe what's not true? All these questions of like epistemology and psychology. <laughs> it was just very it was like right there for me to just be curious about. As she grew older and went off to college, that thoughtfulness and curiosity led her into the field of philosophy. All the stuff that I learned with my philosophy professor, Professor Cosman, had a huge impact on me about like ethics. I was more like in my inner world and like I think trying to understand people's motivations. Aristotle and Plato, I still think about that. Basically, anytime I have to make a decision, it just gives me these frameworks to understand where people are coming from, like blueprints, like myths almost, you know? Alex loved philosophy, but after graduating, she wanted to tap into another side of herself. I finished college, but I was kind of sad that I had been so academic. I was like, I should go back to art school, and I got into a few art schools. And at the same time, I got this, offered this job to paint signs. So I was like, wow, okay, well, I guess I'll just paint the signs and like get paid to do art instead of like going into debt to do art. I painted signs at this really awesome place called Zingerman's. This is our monthly coffee that's going to be on special. Or try this olive oil. I was like, you're paying me to like listen to music and paint all day. Like, <laughs> how is this real? Like, is this real life? <laughs> so it was great. But then in 2007, Alex had to leave that job. Her husband, who had just graduated from law school, had landed a one-year clerkship with a federal judge in Puerto Rico. I was like, cool, like, my husband's a lawyer, like, we're going to be making six figures, like, my life's going to be awesome. He was interviewing after this clerkship for all these positions. He got interviewed the day the Dow dropped. 
going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. It was like a bloodbath. And then all these people who interviewed him weren't even there. And he had a recruiter who eventually just told him, like, sorry. Like, there's just no jobs right now for someone with one year of experience. The recession hit them hard, and one year in Puerto Rico turned into four. They couldn't find a way back into the job market. Everyone was sort of like moving down. If you had like one year of experience, you were trying to do like an unpaid internship just to keep your foot in the door in the law department. And we couldn't really do that. Like we had two kids, we were in Puerto Rico. Yeah, so that's when things got financially like really bad and really hard and just like credit cards, creditors. I hadn't been worried about money because I was like, whatever, it's just this year and then I'll be fine. So we're kind of in debt, but it was like something that was going to be solved at the first thing. And then it was like, boom, sorry, I can't pay any this back and I'm poor and I had to move on with my mother-in-law. During the recession, stable work became scarce and many people had to hustle just to make ends meet. This was also the time that ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft came onto the market. Alex and her husband did what they could to sustain themselves. He was an adjunct professor at the time, like working in four different schools, like hustling to get his classes filled, and we couldn't even pay rent. And that's when I was just like, wow, this is really messed up. Like, I, I guess I had known people who didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't understand it until living through it. And we're still honestly like coming out of that 10 years later. Like, things are kind of just starting to turn around. So. Alex and her family moved to San Diego to live with her mother. Neither one of them had a job. It wasn't easy. I was coming off of having a baby and living in Puerto Rico, and my husband was coming off of being an adjunct law professor, and our kids were really young. There was one time when my daughter, she's just kind of being silly, like a little bit overtired, toddler mode. And so she threw her, her pillow down, and she tried to jump on it, and she landed on her chin. I just remember like her being so scared, there being so much blood, and just wanting to like take care of her. And like my husband and I were kind of freaking out. Like he was like, "She needs stitches. Like what are we gonna do? We can't afford to go to the to the emergency room. We don't have five hundred dollars. Like that's a ridiculous situation to put parents in or put anybody in." Even as the economy started to rebound, many people were forced to take on lower wage work, despite having a college degree and previous work experience. It was challenging for Alex to find a job. So I really was like going to the unemployment centers and working the program. <laughs> like, you know, they had like all these workshops you had to get through and then they'd like help you find jobs. She finally found a job making signs for a food retailer in La Jolla. The company had a focus on healthy foods and it reminded her of her time working for Zingerman's. When I first went there, I was so into it. I was like, conscious capitalism, yeah, like this is, you know, just like Zingerman's and, you know, you can be a job creator and like do it ethically and like we're having such a great impact on the food system. I was like a true believer for a while and I felt so good to be working and like making money finally. With her new job, Alex and her family were able to move into their own apartment. Eventually, 
she transferred to Los Angeles, where she discovered urban gardening. And I was like, I want there to be a farm there. That's going to be so cool. And like, I would love to be the one who does that. And then I realized kind of like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to grow. And so I started actually an internship and I had a cool boss. She was like letting me like come in, adjust my hours so that I could work around it. Alex's role as a sign maker was unique, and she often had access to the corporate side of the store. She started to notice things. They were starting to hire more and more part-timers. They were adjusting their percentage so that there'd be more part-timers and less full-timers. And I was noticing that the benefits were getting worse every year. And I was noticing that they really didn't want people to be in a union. And they had this whole thing in the, in the team leader meeting about what to do if you know, you're approached by someone who wants to be in a union and it's like, don't even touch the paper. Don't touch it, let them drop it on the floor. Like, there was this whole thing about that. The changes disturbed Alex. This was not the conscious capitalism she had envisioned. Pretty soon, the company started to lay off workers. So I felt kind of like my head was on a chopping block and like this was probably the best deal I was going to get was to get a severance and get out of there. So yes, I left. I got really depressed. I watched Pride and Prejudice for like a month. All the different versions. I take little pleasure in a ball. I would take more pleasure in this one if there were enough partners as agreeable as James. I felt really bad that I didn't try to unionize because that's what needed to happen. You know, they would have kind of like been able to gain a foothold in like the good parts of that company where they really did try to take care of people and be decent. I was like, the ethical thing to do would have been to like use my privilege and my education and my intelligence to like spread the word and get this out to people and like figure it out. Alex finished her internship at a Pasadena farm and started to volunteer at a school garden. She had found her passion, but it didn't cover the bills. She still needed to find work. And my husband was driving. He did Instacart for a while, and then he did Uber and Lyft. He got me in on that. For Lyft, it was a huge bonus. I had to get 1,000 rides in 90 days, which is working full time. I would get $5,000 bonus. So that was like amazing. <laughs> we saw that and we were like, okay, you gotta do this. The bonuses were good. And so were certain aspects of the job. The things that are good about it are actually good about it. Like, you can drive whenever you want to. That's cool. You know, you get to meet a lot of different people. That's fun. You get to see this place that you live in. You get to know it really well. And I talk to people who've lived here a long time, but they really only know, like, their neighborhood. And I was talking to somebody who was trying to, like, write a TV show, and he was talking about his character who, like, lives in L.A. And I was like, okay, but, like, what kind of L.A.? Like, where does this person live? Like, what neighborhood? Like, are they, like, Santa Monica? Are they, like, Highland Park? And they just sort of looked at me blankly, like, I don't really know what that means. And he'd been here for, like, ever, <laughs> you know? But I knew because I'd been driving. You know, and I could do my gardening and, and drive and I could pursue all these interests and do freelance. And if I didn't have a freelance project come through, I could make that, up that money driving. You know, that's really good. And it's even kind of addictive because I drove all kinds of people around. I drove like boring people around. I drove <laughs> celebrities around. I drove, I drove drug dealers around. I drove prostitutes around. I drove Republicans around. Pretty soon... 
Both Alex and her husband were driving full-time. It was our main source of income for two years. We were both basically driving full-time, and we tried different ways to work it. So at one point, it got kind of crazy with one car, trying to get the kids to their schools and everything, and four people, one car, and that was the source of income. So I rented a car for a little bit, and that was, like, really stressful because it was like I had to get 85 rides a week, which you can figure each ride takes about a half hour. It was like, I think 250 bucks a week for that car. And I was taking home, you know, maybe 700. So it's not a lot of money per week to be working full time to take home. Just feel yourself getting deeper and deeper in debt and harder and harder to pay things. And they kept cutting the rates or just making it more difficult to get these bonuses. I probably wasn't making minimum wage, even though it felt like I was, because there was sort of all this money churning and they keep making it worse. And every time they make it worse, they say that it's gonna be better for you. It's if you don't get into an accident. That's if like your car doesn't break down and then you don't have any way to earn money while it gets fixed or you don't have any money saved up to pay for it to be fixed. There's no security to it. You don't have insurance when you don't have the app on. So I was pretty unclear about how covered I was. That was really scary. Um, I was trying to like always keep the app on. My car has like 150,000 miles on it right now, and I still have like $9,000 to pay on it. And I just found out I have $2,000 of repairs I have to do to it. We basically just like burned through that car and, you know, don't have a lot to show for it. All the time we were driving, and we have cheap rent for LA, we would still like bottom out. I had rides where I had a dollar in my pocket and I needed to buy gas, and I was really hungry. <laughs> going out for my shift and I was like a good thing I'm in like Compton or whatever so I can go down to this little shop and buy like a concha and a coffee for like a dollar <laughs> and it'll get me through so like and hopefully I'll end up with some money at the end of the day. People use their personal cars and the trust system is built through the app. It's largely up to the drivers to manage their own safety. There's also a lot of pressure about when and where to drive. The more lucrative times are often the unsafe ones. You lose money when there's traffic because you're sitting in it and you get paid per mile. You get paid per minute too, but it's like a really low rate. 2 a.m., you can make it from downtown to Beverly Hills in like 20 minutes, you know, and get like a decent payout for it. I would do the night shift a lot too because of the surge. And then actually at some point they divorced the surge from even what they're paying people. So now when there's a surge, the driver isn't necessarily seeing that. They're seeing like a small percentage of that. It was funny, like a lot of tough guys would be like, you know, like your husband lets you do this. Do you carry a knife? <laughs> They'd ask you stuff like that. Do you carry mace? Do you carry pepper spray? And I, I never did. And actually you're not supposed to carry like a weapon. I did have a couple situations where, like, men would hit on me. My tactic was kind of, like, to find some way to, to dispel it before it went down that road. I mean, sometimes I would say I was married. That would be, like, a pretty, like, blunt force way to do it. Oh, and I also, like, started dressing different, too. So I was like, okay, even though it's more comfortable, like, I'm definitely not doing this in a skirt. And at this one point, I was wearing like a like a tank top. It was like not super late at night, but like maybe nine o'clock, ten o'clock. And I picked up some guys, I think from a bar, like a car full of guys. The guy immediately like 
grabbed, like, I was like, oh, I love this song. And he, like, put the volume up. And that was, like, immediately a red flag. You don't just don't go in someone's car and touch it. Like, he's crossing boundaries already. Like, you start to kind of, like, see, like, little red flags like that. And so then, like, a couple minutes later, the guy in the back seat's like, I like your biceps. And I was wearing a tank top. And I was like, I do kickboxing. Which is a total lie. I don't do kickboxing. And he was like, oh, I thought that was more like a leg thing. And I was like, oh, no, we punch a lot. And it, like, I'm punching the bag, like, every day. That just really made them all back off. Not to say, like, I'm this master of manipulation. Like, if I had run into someone who really wanted to hurt me, like, there's very little I could have done about it. Yeah, and it's hard, too, because you don't really get a read on someone before they're in your car. And then once they're in your car, is the safest thing to do to be like, get out? Probably not, you know what I mean? How extreme does it have to be for you to be like, I'm leaving my car and running away from this? If you get a weird vibe, the best thing to do is just like, be very reserved, figure out where they're going, get them there, make it happen, be as like nice as possible and appease them as much as possible and then just like get out of there. There's no time to like assess people or screen people. I don't think that the companies assess or screen their passengers at all. And also, like, I'm driving sometimes people's friends, you know, like a lot of times, oh, my, my friend's too drunk, take them home. That's like a very unsafe position. I don't even know their name. They told me the name of the person who ordered it. I think that shouldn't be allowed because it's not safe. I picked up this lady once. She's like, well, let me tell you something. Like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to pick up some bags. But, I, you know, it's going to take a little while. But I really, I really need you to wait for me and take me to this other location because, like, I'm leaving my boyfriend and he's abusive. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I started running all these stuff I learned from college of, like, what's the ethical thing to do in this situation? And also just empathetic stuff of, like, we've all been in these bad situations where someone helped us. So I was kind of like oh God, all right, you know, just get your bags. And she like took forever getting these bags. And I'm like waiting, like, oh my God, the, the, the boyfriend's gonna show up. Right as we're pulling out the driveway, he like comes up with his car and like parks in front of it. And like they get out and they start like talking. I don't know what this guy's deal is, you know? I don't know if he's gonna pull a gun and like shoot her in the face and me. She's kind of trying to go in the car. She's pulling on my door handle, too. And I'm like, oh, man, they're going to mess up the car. And so, which is another thing I'm always, like, really paranoid about. Because, like, is Uber going to pay for that? If not, can I drive? So I called 911. And they said they were going to send a squad car. So I'm kind of, like, waiting it out now. Then he starts talking to me. He's like, like, don't take her away. Just bring her back. And I was like, oh, God. Like, what am I going to do with this guy? You really hone your intuition and... Just like, I guess, street smarts. Like, I really developed, I think, some modicum of street stars, which I had none growing up in Princeton. So I just looked at him and I was like, dude, I called the cops. And it ended up being, I guess, the right thing to say, because he was kind of like, he backed off and he, like, closed the door, got freaked out. And that was before the cops ever showed up. Then I dropped her off and then picked up another ride. And it was, like, someone completely different, you know? So that's what it's like. After two years of driving, Alex's ethical lens flared up. From the perspective that I've gotten on it, it's, they're just not a good company. I gave them all of that time and, you know, supported their project with my labor. I feel really like dirty and used. <laughs> they're a taxi company with an app. Taxis have been around. That's why the regulations that exist, exist. They just kind of came in with their app and tried to erase that. And there's no reason they should get to do that at all. 
Technology is not some like magic wand that you wave and you get to flout whatever law you don't want to follow. Like that's ridiculous. Another key issue within ride hailing is the classification of the drivers. Uber and Lyft drivers are classified as independent contractors, which means they don't work for the company, but their own businesses. We're not small business owners. Like they, they tell us that so we feel important. So we feel like we're like taking control of our futures and stuff and so that they can, you know, not give us overtime, not give us a minimum wage, not give us time off, pay time off, not give us unemployment, not give us workers comp. People want to have the freedom to turn the app on and turn the app off. That doesn't necessarily have to go against being an employee. You could be an employee who does that. That fits within the model. You're not really protected unless you're an employee. A lot of nights I worked, I didn't make money. It took me a while to figure it out, you know? I grew up in Princeton. I went to college. I got a 4 in calculus. Like, it took me a long time to figure it out. And eventually you do figure it out because you're just like, your life isn't functioning right. You're having all this money coming in, but you're not getting ahead. You're getting behind. People need to realize, again, that they don't just have to take whatever scraps are like thrown to them. And they don't have to tolerate being treated this way because there's more of them and they can make demands, you know, and they can have each other's backs and they can say like, this is not okay. Unlike other jobs, Ride-hailing doesn't have a common space where drivers can meet and discuss their experience. Alex would talk to her husband, but she didn't have contact with other drivers. Then one day, she saw a Facebook ad by a group called Rideshare Drivers United, and she began attending their meetings. I saw the ad, and I was like, well, let me check that out. And then they called me, and I talked to them. That was like pretty much when it was really very starting up. I had a really good conversation with them, and then I, I filled out their... They have like a, we, I guess now, we have a, a survey that you fill out to say like what issues matter to you most. So that's how we figured out like democratically what people care about and what they wanted to prioritize. And you could even add your own in. They did a few meetings, which basically was like a support group. Everyone just had so much to get off their chest that we would all just be like, and then this and then that. Eventually we kind of settled into like a group that just works well together. Since the fall or winter, it's kind of when I started going to the meetings and really organizing, and we started doing actions. Doing outreach, like, it's intense. I'll leave things on windshields if I see the sticker, and sometimes I run into the people doing that. A lot of them, I don't know, it's crazy, like, no matter what happens, a lot of them are like, good, like, yeah, we need this. Like, so many people are fired up about it. By January 2019, Rideshare Drivers United was ready for its first action. Drivers rallied outside of the governor's office to bring attention to the misclassification of drivers as independent contractors. I felt really good to just be like on the street and with a sign saying like, this is wrong and we need help and we're not being treated well. And then our second action was in March 25th and that was a strike and a protest. And that one got over 300 drivers out. And Bernie Sanders came out supporting us from that. And that was sort of for the Lyft IPO. It was right around the Lyft IPO. So, so we're like, we have to say something before the Uber IPO. They're even bigger than Lyft. They decided to plan a national strike. We had Chicago come in, uh, New York, Atlanta, Boston, and then the UK got wind of it. And then 
I mean, I had people contacting me from like Africa, from Nigeria. I was on a, a chat with people in, in Chile and Panama and Uruguay and in Brazil. Alex knew what her special contribution could be. It was coming up with that perfect sign. I was trying to think of like a, like something that would be good on a sign, like short, and I came up with apps off. Actually, it was inspired by Boots Riley's movie, Sorry to Bother Me, because they say phones down. And I was like, everyone gets really fired up in the movie when they all say phones down. And I was like, hmm, maybe I could do apps off. The night before the strike in the airport, it was so exciting because like right at midnight, everybody got in their cars, made a line, and they were like honking and like yelling apps off and like putting their fists out the windshield and stuff. I had no idea that was gonna happen. That was probably the best, like most exciting moment of the organizing. It was just like, yes, we were like jumping up and down and stuff. <laughs> like, that's how you take out the trash. <laughs> I saw a picture from Brazil where someone had written apps off on their window shield and I was just like, oh my God. For us, it was a 24-hour airport strike, and we had picketing all day at the airport. We had about 500 people come through for the picketing. About a dozen Uber and Lyft drivers at LAX are urging customers and all the rideshare drivers not on strike to turn off their apps for 24 hours. I've heard estimates that we knocked a billion dollars off their valuation and like blew up even at the Democratic National, not convention, but they had some um, meeting recently and somebody stood up and was like, should we be taking money from Uber? I don't think that would happen if it wasn't for a strike. Like people say like activism doesn't work and your strike didn't work, you didn't hurt them. Like not that many people struck, I could still get a car, but it's like none of that would have happened if we hadn't had like a worldwide strike. So, I mean, it was pretty amazing. And so now we're trying to just stick to the more like nitty gritty stuff of making sure AB5 goes through well, seeing what city council can do, um, building relationships across the country so that, so that we're all kind of on the same page. In fall 2019, California passed AB5, a bill that would make gig workers employees. Uber is already fighting it. Alex started to unpack the labor movement through her philosophy lens. I'm really trying to get up to snuff on like the history of the labor movement. I didn't, never had any reason to think about that before. And the meaning of work and hierarchy also, because a lot of the problem is that board of directors of companies make all the decisions for the company. And these are like probably a dozen completely out of touch people who haven't had any level of financial difficulty in their life, probably most of them. And they're making these decisions about people they don't have to see under circumstances that they don't understand. One thing I've learned through all my like time is, I don't know if any philosopher ever said this, suffering creates empathy. I think a lot about that. At some point I realized like I'm making less every year. This is like total dead end job. I'm not getting any younger. I need to figure something else out. I drive now if I have to, I'll take rides if I'm like on my way somewhere because it'll kind of offset, right? The carpooling cost, <laughs> basically. But like, if I drive, I'm not making money. Everybody who can get out of it should, if they possibly can. A special thanks to Alex Carbone for sharing her story. 
To learn more about the work of Rideshare Drivers United, you can visit their website at drivers-united.org. You're listening to ReWork, a program of the UCLA Labor Center and KPFK. This week's show was produced by Veena Hampapur and Sabah Wahid. Editing by Veena Hampapur and D'Angelo Jones. Subscribe to Rework Radio on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Visit our website at reworkradio.org or Facebook at forward slash reworkradio. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at rework underscore radio. Till next time, rethink, rework.